please do take a seat. Now, if you'd like to turn back to uh, page 1047, I'd love it if you're able to keep that open and follow along with me. It'll help uh, you uh, uh, keep up to where I'm going. And if, just in case you're tempted to fall asleep, we have an, an offensively yellow handout, which will sort of burst into your eyes and uh, cause retinal damage. And, uh, but you might like to take notes on that if you're so inclined. Before I start, should we, uh, should we pray together? Father God, we praise you that whatever path our, um, we might be facing at the moment, we thank you that your grace is all sufficient and it shall be our supply. Please speak to us now, we pray, in this passage. Show us something of ourselves. Please show us something of you, of your son, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a t- TV program on Channel 4. You might have seen it called Come Dine With Me. Have you come across this one? It's that the premise of the show is there's five strangers and they take turns sort of hosting meals for one another. And uh, it, it, what really makes the show interesting isn't so much the food element. You can kind of take it or leave it with that. But what makes this TV show brilliant is that the producers seem to have chosen the most catastrophic cocktail of personalities and then sat them around a t- dinner table. And for half an hour, you get to watch them bicker, fall out, backstab. It's great television. And our reason to begin with that is because chapter 14 here in Luke really is Luke's version of Come Dine With Me. It's got to go down as one of the most awkward dinner parties ever. The matter, if you flip through it, the amount of time that you come across awkward silences in this text is just painful. And uh, you might have seen this, this meal, it's being uh, hosted by some of Israel's top religious leaders. These guys were wealthy, they were upright. They were respected. They're the sort of guys you'd want to go into business with. They're the sort of guys you'd want your daughters to marry. That sort of guys. And here they are. They're they're eating with Jesus. And we might be thinking, well, of course they're eating with Jesus. Surely these are the sort of guys that God wants in his kingdom. But with a few well-placed questions and parables... Jesus manages to utterly dismantle their charade. Yes, he might be eating with them now, but who will he be eating with in the kingdom of God? Who will be reclining at table in the heavenly banquet? Who will be attending that great wedding feast which we thought about at the start of our service? I think the shock of this passage we're going to see, it isn't so much that Israel's leaders reject the invitation. The shock isn't so so much that. The shock is the reason why they reject the invitation. And friends, that's where it's going to come slightly close to home for us. The theme which we're going to see recurring throughout this section is that social self-righteousness kind of indicates a spiritual self-righteousness. Or in other words, the way we think of ourselves before others, on a horizontal axis if you like, it kind of indicates how we think of ourselves before God in the vertical axis. So the first thing we see uh, Jesus observing about his hosts, and you can see this in your handouts, is that they're more concerned with convenience than compassion. Look down with me to verse 1 in your Bibles. Please follow with me at verse 1. Page 1047. 
One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Just to keep you up to speed where we are in the story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it seems wherever he goes, whatever town he passes by, everyone wants him in their house. Everyone wants to hang out with this great man, this great teacher, this miracle worker. And it's little surprise, therefore, that the local religious leaders, they want to get in on the action as well. But Luke alerts us here that this meal, it isn't so much a kindly invitation to a a road-weary traveller. No, this is a trap. Since chapter 11, the Pharisees have been determined to catch Jesus. They're looking for any error, any weakness, anything which they might capitalise on in order to expose Jesus before the crowds of people following him. And that's probably why this man with dropsy was invited to the party. Dropsy, we don't really use the word anymore, do we? It's sort of the, um, the old word for having swollen limbs due to sort of excess fluid. It's usually an indication of, of, of heart failure, I'm told. So it's a bad disease. But worse than that, according to Israel's law, it also made you ritually unclean. That, that meant you weren't allowed to worship God in the temple. You weren't allowed to approach God and offer sacrifices there. So you might be wondering, why is it then that that a Pharisee, a leading Pharisee, someone who above all is concerned for ritual purity, why on earth has he invited this dropsy guy who embodies ritual uncleanness? Well, most likely he's hoping that Jesus will heal the man on the Sabbath. He hopes that Jesus would do work on the day when God commanded Israel not to do work. This, the Pharisee thinks, is his chance to expose Jesus before all of the crowds following him. But Jesus isn't an idiot, is he? He senses the trap, and so he puts that question straight back to them. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him away. What Jesus does here is is simply extraordinary. Here is this poor man. He's broken in body. He's shunned by the people. He's unclean before God. And yet Jesus comes up to him and he he takes hold of him. Literally, he, he embraces him. And this broken man is made whole. The unclean is made clean. And he is restored to God. Jesus has compassion on that man. But by doing so, he falls straight into the pit, the trap which had been set for him. Brilliant, the Pharisees were thinking. Brilliant. We've got him. We've got him. Jesus has now demonstrated his complete disregard for Israel's law. And once again, the people will know that we're the true leaders here Yeah, people might say that, why didn't you help out the man with the dropsy? But we'd say something like, well, alas, it was the Sabbath day. And, you know, our hands were tied. We would love to have helped him, but we couldn't have done because it's the Sabbath. Well, Jesus' next question completely exposes their hypocrisy, doesn't it? Look at verse 5. Then he asked them, 
If one of you had a son or an ox which falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? So bear with me, picture the scene. Phineas the Pharisee, he arrives home after a morning at synagogue on the Sabbath day. His uh, children, I think, had left early from synagogue because, you know, like dads like to do, they sort of chitter-chatter. And I think he had to lock up the building or something like that. So his kids went home early and he he walked into uh, his home, but his kids weren't there. But he hears some sort of crying, some screaming from the garden. So he rushes outside and, no, oh no, he's discovered that little Timmy has fallen down the well. So what does Phineas the Pharisee do? Well, he calls out to Timothy, hold on, hold on. I'd love to help you, but it's the Sabbath. Can you, can you sort of tread water for the next nine hours? And, and, then, and then maybe maybe I can then pull you out then. But don't do it too strenuously because it's the Sabbath and you shouldn't really be doing any work. Will he say that? No. What sort of monster would he be? Of course, immediately, Phineas the Pharisee would pull him out with a rope. Jesus' question here utterly exposes the Pharisees' hypocrisy. It silences them. It seems they'd, they'd happily relax their religious code when it's in their own interest to do so. And yet when they come across someone else, someone outside of themselves in dire need, in dire need of compassion, their religious code suddenly becomes conveniently rigid, preventing any involvement whatsoever. Now I wonder if we might see something of ourselves here. See, when it comes to our own friends or our own family, we we do go to, we, we can be extraordinarily compassionate, can't we? We, we go the extra mile for them. We uh, carve out extra time for them. We pay whatever it costs to help them out. But then sometimes when we're presented with an opportunity to show compassion to others outside of ourselves, something which might put us out of our way, perhaps a certain ministry, a youth ministry, a children's ministry here might need extra helpers. Or perhaps there's a member in your small group who needs a lot of time and a lot of care. Suddenly we think, oh, it's just, a, it's just an inconvenience. It's a bridge too far. Tragically, I, I think sometimes we can even use our theology to sort of justify our lack of compassion. I think Bible-believing churches like ours, it, we're right to stress, aren't we, that what people really need is forgiveness of sins. They need the gospel. But often that, that, that is used by churches to, 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 to justify a lack of concern for any other need in the local community. It's common to hear churches argue that, that mercy ministries distract us from gospel ministry. And that, that could sometimes be the case. But I wonder if sometimes churches say that simply because they're more concerned with convenience than compassion. Because it's inconvenient to do those sort of things. It's costly to do those sort of things. I wonder if we're more concerned with convenience than compassion. Well, let's return to our slightly awkward dinner party. After verse 6, there's a bit of awkward silence, and Jesus breaks it with another observation about his hosts. He notices, secondly on your sheets, that they're more concerned with honour than humility. 
you can imagine that at this stage of the meal, perhaps um, the dropsy guy was just the hors d'oeuvres. He was just there with the drinks and nibbles. But now they're about to take their seats around the table. And you need to know that when at dinner parties back then, they, they kind of sat around these sort of horseshoe-shaped tables. So a bit, a bit like how we're set out here, really. They're all sort of facing in uh, one another. And the host of the meal, he would always sit at the sort of the apex of the horseshoe. That, that's the place of honour. That's where the most important guy sits. And the people to, to his left and to his right, they were the, they were the seats of honour. So where Katie and, and, and where Hilda and Janet are and where John are, those are the really important people here today. But as he, as he went down the sort of the social tiers, as we, you know, David and, and Rita, they're slightly less important, really. And then, and then we get to Hattie. <laughs> oh, dear. She, 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 she was lucky to get an invite, really. Thanks for coming, Hattie. With that, that sort, of, sort of context in mind, you can imagine why all these, these Pharisees, all these important people, they're scrabbling for those great seats. Because no one wants to sit where Hattie's sitting. No one whatsoever. Well, look at verse 7. What does Jesus think of this? When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. I was at a wedding the other day, and there's always that moment of trepidation when you look at the seating plan for the meal, isn't there? Do you get that sense of trepidation, that sense of nervousness? Because you don't want to discover, for the next three or four hours, you're going to be sat next to Aunt Maud in the sort of the distant relatives table. It's always, no one wants to be on that table. You want to be on the fun table, don't you? The fun table with all your uni friends. You know, it's going to be a lot of fun there. Well, imagine you, the audacity, how rude it would be if when you saw the sort of the seating plan, you just, you just carefully peeled your name off and replaced it with someone else's. But for you, the, the, the fun table isn't enough. Oh no, you want to be on the top table with the bride and groom. So you peel off the, the mother of the bride, off she goes. <laughs> And you peel off your name next to Aunt Maud. You whack the mother of the bride next to Aunt Maud. And you put yourself smack bang next to the groom. The place of honour. What will happen? Well, it's not going to be long, is it? Before the best man comes along, hoiks you up out of your seat. And parades you before everyone else. And you're not going to get to sit next to Aunt Maud. Oh no, you've sunk even lower than that. You're now on the children's table. (laughs) It can't get any worse than that. Well, what's Jesus' point here? in this parable is he just giving us his top tips on how to behave at weddings no that's not his point jesus here he, he's preparing us for the great wedding feast to come he wants us to enjoy that heavenly banquet in the kingdom of god and so his point here is pretty simple it seems those who are driven by a desire to honor themselves now well, they're going to find themselves very humbled on that last day. Humiliated, in fact. There were the Pharisees. You can picture them clambering over those places of honour. We might think, oh, what a pathetic sight. But actually, we do the same thing, really, don't we? We just do it in a slightly more sophisticated way. So in conversation, we like to sort of subtly drop in sort of compliments about ourselves. About, about we, we subtly promote ourselves and, and how great we are. But we do it in a very sort of downplayed British, perhaps, way. Or maybe we use Facebook or social media to, to let people know what we have, where we've been, what sort of food we're eating, um, who we sort of rub shoulders with. 
Maybe we find ourselves harboring bitterness or anger against those who might be in better positions than us, maybe at work, maybe in church. Maybe we mentally push down those we think don't deserve their positions. If we're doing that, I wonder if it's because we've forgotten an aspect of, of God's grace. It's as if we think we deserve everything we have because we've earned it. You see, this social self-righteousness, it indicates a sort of spiritual self-righteousness. And it's pretty ugly, isn't it? But a beautiful alternative is found here in verse 10. Look down with me. 10. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The wonderful thing here is how Jesus embodies his very own teaching. Just picture Jesus. Surely he is, above all, the most honoured guest. He's the son of God. And yet, what did he do? Did he demand the best seat, the top seat? No. He sunk himself down to the very lowest seat. He went to the cross. And there, the glorious, most honoured son of God was dishonoured. In order that we, proud, boastful sinners might be exalted to God. Friends, the more we are awed by this truth, that, that by nature we're not worthy, that, that, that we're, we're not deserving, that we've been given this exalted status at, at the king's table, the more we're, we're awed by that truth, that the more that captures our hearts, the less we'll be bothered about competing for power and status and influence and prestige. A few years ago, Darren Brown is an illusionist, a, a entertainer. He, he posted this picture on Twitter. You probably won't be able to see it where you are. It's a black and white photo taken in 1947 of a, a girl in a New York orphanage. She's kneeling at her at her, her bed, her praying, and you might be able to see above her head is this poster, and it says this. It says. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And Darren Brown, he posted this on Twitter, and as you can imagine, he was outraged by it. People thought this is a horrible thing, that this, this young girl who has nothing to say to her that yourself lost, you've got to put yourself last. And this was just widely derided uh, across the Twitter sphere, whatever it's called. Until someone stopped to point out who it was who built the orphanage and who runs the orphanage. It wasn't built and run by people who were seeking their own glory and their own honour and their own power. It was built and it was run by people who sought to put Jesus first, little orphan girls second, and then themselves last. I think that picture is a beautiful picture. It symbolises the transformation that the gospel can have in a life, in a community. Let's go back to the dinner party, which somehow seems to keep limping on. 
But it's about to get worse. As Jesus makes his third observation about his hosts, it seems, we see on our sheets, that they are more concerned with social climbing than social justice. So as Jesus sort of looks around the room, he starts to take notice of who it is who's been invited to this party. And there's a common theme. It seems everyone here is respected, powerful, and influential. And perhaps we can imagine that it was the ancient equivalent of the mayor, the, the MP, the, the, the local bishop. They're all there at this party, hobnobbing together. A very impressive guest list. But, but Jesus doesn't seem to be impressed, does he? Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, apparently in front of everyone else, much to his embarrassment, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. Jesus notices that this impressive guest list was actually rather self-serving. Either he was only interested in looking after his own, his friends, his family, or he was interested in influencing powerful people for himself, like his rich neighbours. In other words, he's using hospitality as a way to bolster his position in the community, as a way to uh, express to everyone how powerful and how important he was. It was a status symbol. And again, just just press pause in the story. I wonder if we we see something of ourselves here. Because we do, don't we? We do find it easier to love those who love us, don't we? We like hanging out with people who are like us. We fawn and we, we flatter those we think you might be able to sort of we might be able to move us on in life or move us up that ladder. It's why if you're in your sports clubs or in your social groups or even in your workplace, we see cliques forming and, and, and insiders and outsiders because this sort of dynamic here is at work. But sometimes you even see it at work in churches, sadly. Uh, slowly over time you see churches that they can sort of turn in on themselves. People slowly begin to not really take much interest in newcomers or, or outsiders. Instead, people just, just want to look after the people who they already know. Um, churches can easily break into factions of different social groups, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. It's disastrous. Again, this form of social self-righteousness, it indicates a spiritual self-righteousness. So if we think we're important, we're worthy, we're deserving, or that we're only ever, ever going to end up loving other people we think are important or worthy or deserving. But just stop and ask this. Is that how God loved us? Is that the reason why God chose us? Because we were impressive. Because we deserved it. Because we could pay him back. No. Not at all. Verse 13 shows us the gospel way. Look at 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It seems Jesus deliberately chooses this list of people because each of them were outcasts. The poor were excluded from polite society. The crippled and the blame and the blind they were excluded from from temple worship 
They had no access to God and forgiveness. And Jesus looked at these guys, these poor, these crippled, these blind, these lame. He looks at them and goes, yeah, yeah, invite them. Invite them. They're the guys. You should get along. And I'm so glad he said that. Because, of course, by nature, we're spiritually poor. We cannot pay God back. By nature, we are spiritually crippled, lame. We're powerless to save ourselves. By nature, we are spiritually blind on our own. We'll just be fumbling around in the dark, left guessing for answers. And yet to us, to us has been extended this most gracious invitation to the most wonderful feast, to eat with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. Around about 12 years ago, I was invited to um, a New Year's Eve party. Um, a friend of mine from university, she's quite posh. Her dad sort of ran the Sandringham estate, which is where the, sort of, the queen lives. So a slight sort of trepidation, I was sort of driving down this um, really ridiculously long driveway to her parents' sort of manor home. And uh, there was I in my Marks and Spencer suit, sort of just awaiting this really awkward evening where I had to tell people what I did. I work for a church. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but actually, I was quite surprised. Because my friend Rosie, yes, she, she invited uh, all her sort of upper crust, upper society sort of friends. And then she invited uh, sort of people like me, her sort of lower society friends, in our Marks and Spencer suits. But more than that, she seemed to invite everyone she knew. She lived in, in South London. She, she invited her plumber. She invited her electrician. She invited the entirety of her small group Bible study, which met on this South London estate. It's a completely different world to these guys. Here was a girl whose heart was completely gripped by the gospel. She didn't think she was someone. She didn't think she was massively important because she had this wealth. She realized that by grace, by nature, she, she was no one. And so she wanted to extend this invitation to everyone. I, I thought it was wonderful. Well, may I ask you this? Who is it that you show hospitality to? Who is it who you have round for, for lunch on Sundays or for meals in the evening? Who is it that you try and meet up with for coffee in the week? Just think, who are those people you have? I guess there's a warning here, a challenge here. If we never really invite anyone, I guess there's a warning, a challenge here, if, if we only ever invite people like us. I guess there's a warning and a challenge here if we only ever invite people who can somehow reciprocate and benefit us. I'd really love it if here at St. John's there was more of a culture of hospitality. And don't misunderstand me. I don't mean by that this amazing three-course meals and, and a banquet which you need to sort of impress people by. That's not hospitality. Well, it is, but it's not. <laughs> hospitality can be beans on toast. It can be a, a cup of tea in a dirty mug. It's just having someone in your home. It's inviting someone into your life and expressing oneness with them. Yeah, I think welcoming one another, it's, it's a powerful reflection of how we've already been welcomed by God. I, I love it if there's more of a culture of that in, in, in this evening service. Okay, we're going back to the dinner party. So far, Jesus has insulted the guests. He's insulted the host. And so you can probably sort of cut the tension with a bit of a knife. And so someone at this point, in verse 15, tries to salvage the whole evening. It's getting cripplingly awkward. But he tries to find some point of agreement amongst us, uh, some sort of common ground. So he bursts out in verse 15. Well, blessed is everyone who will be eating in the kingdom of God. 
um, hoping that will sort of save the scene. He means well, doesn't he? But he drops a bit of a clangor. His statement, it assumes that he'll be there in the kingdom of God at the heavenly banquet. When in fact, most likely everyone at this table probably most likely will reject Jesus' invitation. It's our final point. Look down to verse 16 with me. He tells another story. Verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell all those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. When it comes to party organisation, there's, there's a key difference between our culture now and their culture back then. You kind of need to get it. Our, our sort of time-conscious culture, when we send an invite out, we always tell people exactly when it is and where it is. And people tend to RSVP, don't they? And let you know whether they're coming or not. It's a single event, the, the invite. Well, back then in those days, they're less bothered about timings and things like that. The invitation would usually go out in two parts. So initially, the, the host would let, would let everyone know that he's throwing a party, and people at that point would say, yeah, we're going, we're going. And then only when the, when the party was ready would the, would the host send out someone to collect all the guests to come around to enjoy the festivities. And people would usually drop whatever they're doing to come to the party they've already agreed to go to. Well, look what happens as the servant in this story goes to collect these guests in verse 18. But... They all alike began to make excuses. The first said, oh, I've just bought a field. I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, oh, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I I can't come. Not even even an apology there. (laughs) Just a a statement. Now, at first sight, these, these excuses, they seem quite reasonable, don't they? They seem a bit, okay, fair enough. But just a a moment's thought, just to scratch beneath the surface, and you think they're just pathetic. Why on earth do you need to go check out a field if you've already bought it? Surely you would have done that before you put some money down. And it's the same with the oxen. Why would you want to try them out after you've bought them? You would have done that beforehand, surely. It's It's a terrible excuse. And this guy has just got married. Why on earth doesn't he just bring his wife along to the party? It just makes no sense. One by one by one, they make their excuses. Clearly, something is more important to them than attending this celebration. Their money. Their business. Their family. Perhaps a week before, they would have said, yep, we'll be there, we're going to the party, but now the invites come to collect them, but they have other priorities. They've got other things to do. I hope you see that their rejection of this invitation, it's not just rude, it's completely insulting to this guy who's put on an amazing banquet for them. I think Jesus' point here is pretty clear, isn't it? God has, has thrown this incredible party and he wants us to be there. He sent his own son to, to gather all of those people he's invited. And it here that the leaders of Israel, the people who knew this invitation for, for hundreds of years, well, it seems they've got better things to do. They're 
social self-righteousness, which we've seen across this dinner party, it was symptomatic of a deeper spiritual self-righteousness. And here's the result. In their pride, they end up rejecting their God. Well, how will God respond? Does he cancel the party? Well, no. Good news for us, he doesn't. Look at verse 21. 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. As I close, I've got three applications for us. You'll see three bullet points on your handouts. First one is this. I think we need to repent of our self-righteous self-concern. We've got to repent of our self-righteous self-concern. I've noticed over the years that the reason why people reject this wonderful invitation it's not so much because they want to cling on to this heinous sin or crime and they don't want to give that up now more often than not they reject the invite because they think they've got more pressing concerns their career means more to them their education means more to them having a great time means more to them I think we're invited here to assess the value of those things which we're choosing to keep Jesus at arm's length with. And this story gives us an insight into how offensive it is to God to use these things against him. I think the scariest thing in this story is that, like the Pharisees, many of us might not even realise we're keeping God at arm's length. And all the while, we, we might be utterly convinced that, like the Pharisees, we'll be there in the kingdom. We may think of ourselves as good, as upright, as respectable, as important. But if we reject Jesus, we will not be at the feast. I wonder if that's why Jesus spends so long exposing in the Pharisees this social self-righteousness, this social self-concern. If you like it, it's the symptom which reveals the far greater problem. So if, if we, as we've been looking at this, this passage tonight, if, you, if the Spirit's been convicting you of this social self-righteousness, well, perhaps we need to go to him on our knees and repent. Because we do not want to be found rejecting this invite on that last day. That's the first thing. We need to repent. The second thing is this. I think we ought to praise God for extending his hospitality to us. I wonder if you've uh, tried to notice where we are exactly in this story. Often it's good, isn't it, to find, well, who am I here? We're not actually the guests who were originally invited. That's Israel's leaders. And nor are we all those people in the streets of the town who were invited second. If you like, they're the rest of Israel. Israel's poor, Israel's common folk. Who are we here? We are those outside the city, those sitting in hedges and country lanes. 
The invitation has been extended not only to the, the people of Israel, but also to the Gentiles. We who have no right of access to God. So friends, we ought to praise God for Jesus. Here is one who embraces the unclean. Here is one who lifts up the lowly. Here is one who invites those who cannot possibly repay. So if you're here tonight thinking, no, God will never want me in his kingdom. No, God will never want me at this banquet. It's the things I've done, the things I've said, the things I let run through my mind. No, God does not want me there. Well, think again. He desires you. He wants you at this party. He is calling you, beckoning you to come in. And tonight would be a great night to do that. Very quickly, this last bullet point. I think if we've understood something of God's hospitality to us, then of course we're going to extend this hospitality to others. Christians, we're not better than the world outside. We don't don't look down our noses at them. We're not better than people who, who don't know Jesus. It's been said that Christians, we're merely beggars who who point other beggars where to find food. Friends, we've been invited to an amazing feast, an amazing party, an amazing banquet. Well, why don't we point people to it? Why don't we tell them about it? Why don't we pray for this Christianity Explored course coming up for this uh, guest service on, on the 1st of May? Let's be thinking about who we can invite so that they too might hear this wonderful invitation, which is for them. With that, let, let me pray. Let's bow our heads. Almighty God, thank you so much for challenging, challenging us here tonight, for, for showing us something of our self-concern, our self-righteousness. Father, we fall on our knees. Please forgive us. Thank you so much that you welcome outcasts, that you embrace the unclean, that you extend your invitation to those of us who are sitting in hedges. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Please give us boldness and willingness and a desire to extend this love, this compassion, this hospitality, all those we know. Please shape our hearts. Please shape our church around this gospel truth. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song we're going to sing of...